0: Okay, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, Luke 22. I'll be reading Luke chapter 22, verses 63 through 71. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking Him as they beat Him. They also blindfolded Him and kept asking Him, Prophesy! Who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against Him, blaspheming Him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led Jesus away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But He said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And He said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from His own lips. Blessed is the reading of God's holy Word to our hearts. And Father, would You grace me to deal honestly with this text to draw out of it what is there and not to read into it something that is not. But more than anything, by Your Spirit in the hearing of these words in the next 50 minutes, would You work in us? Would You savingly and sanctifyingly work in us to the glory of Jesus? Amen. Well, believe it or not, we began chapter 22 of Luke back at the beginning of November. And we finally arrive now at the end of Luke 22. But what we have been looking at in this chapter are some of the most precious moments in human history. The Lord's Supper... Jesus' Gethsemane prayer. Peter's denial that he even knows Jesus in the courtyard of the high priest. And Jesus turning and looking at Him. And now this morning, the Eternal One, the Creator of the universe, the judge of all, actually allowed himself to be mocked and belittled and ridiculed and spit on and beaten and falsely judged by angry, self-righteous sinners. And it can be said, this very morning, morning, that I hope nobody in here will make that same mistake that these guards made, that the Sanhedrin made, and sit in judgment and in ridicule over Jesus by not obeying his voice called the Scripture but instead will daily make that confession. You are both Lord and Christ. And I hope, therefore, no one in here lives in unrepentant obedience to their fleshly desires. Because that would be to be standing in judgment over Jesus. Imposter. He needs to be getting rid of along with His rules and His will and His truth that He spoke. And I hope that by understanding what we see this morning, that Jesus willingly submitted to such abuse at the hands of sinners that the Holy Spirit will melt our hearts to taste and see the depth of His particular love for every person who will come to Him. So what I want to do first, I'm going to really warn you for a little bit here, really have a thinking cap on, Because I really think it's important at this point to do a little historical backdrop so that we get the flow of just what is really happening here. And So first is this issue. High priests. In the New Testament, two people are called the high priest at this point. Annas and his son-in-law Caiaphas. So what in the world is happening? Because we know only one person sits in that official office at one time not just in in the Old Testament I mean that's how it was in the first century so this is what's happening in the first century BC into the first century AD the Roman government reserved the right to appoint not only the civil leadership but also the religious leadership of the Jews which the chief leader of the Jews religiously was the high priest. So first, this guy called Annas the high priest. He was appointed high priest in the year A.D. 6 until, and he sat in that office until A.D. 15. Or in other words, he was appointed high priest when Jesus was about 10 years old to when Jesus was about 19 years old. And then he was no longer officially the high priest. But here's the thing that's happening here in the first century. Annas remained, by name and by influence, the virtual head of this high priestly office for decades. His influence was so great, even with the Roman government, that after Him, five of His sons, one of His son-in-laws, which is Caiaphas, and a grandson, all were officially appointed and served in the office as high priest. And so, even though He was no longer officially high priest when Jesus was 19, 18 years later, at His trial, He's called the high priest. And, And Luke lets us know In his second book, called the book of Acts, in chapter 4, again, here's the Sanhedrin, we'll get to that in a minute, this council, and we read this from Luke. On the next day, the rulers and the elders and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas. Okay. Caiaphas is actually the official high priest at this time. But Annas is called that. And so we get to Caiaphas. He is Annas' son-in-law. He was appointed high priest in the year A.D. 18. And he remained in that office until A.D. 36, three years after Jesus' trial and crucifixion. Now, Luke himself knows all this and so does the historian Josephus of the first century about Annas and Caiaphas and both called high priest because of this authority of Annas that he carried through. And look what Luke says back in chapter 3. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the Word of God came to John the Baptist. And what's strange about that, he does not say high priesthoods, Plural. It's singular. The high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. And so, secondly, the Sanhedrin. What is this thing that we've heard the term Sanhedrin or hear counsel? If you look at verse 66, we read, And they led Jesus away to their council. That word council is the Greek word sunadrion. Sunadrion. You can start to hear Sanhedrin coming from that. It's a compound word in Greek. Soon, preposition with, soon, edra. With, edra means sit. To sit with. So it had the meaning of sitting in council. That's what the Sunadrion or the Sanhedrin is. It's the ruling council of the Jews. And it had been around for a while. Rome granted the Jews their right to rule their internal affairs in Judea and in Jerusalem. As long as no rebellion is going to come up, as long as they paid their taxes, and kept order. They had this religious right under Jewish domination. On the Sanhedrin, there were 70 members at a time. And they get this from Numbers 11 where we read, Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for Me 70 men of the elders of Israel whom You know to be elders of the people and officers over them, to help Moses keep order. Rule. Do leadership. And so there were 70 plus one. Because the other one was always the sitting high priest who was the president of the council. The leader of the council. Now, who are these people? This council is made up of three different types of Peoples. The first are the high priest, the one in office, other ones who have served, and priest of the high priestly family. And they are all politically slash religiously Sadducees. That's the first third. Then there are the nobility of the Jews, rich aristocracy, families who are all Sadducees. Not priests, but they are civil leaders of the people. They're not Pharisees. Theologically, doctrinally, they are Sadducees. And they're normally referred to in the New Testament as the elders. Look back in our chapter, chapter 22, verse 52. Then Jesus said, when He's being arrested, to the chief priests, and the officers of the temple, and elders. These are the ones. These are the elders. These are these Sadducees, these rich Sadducees sitting on the Sanhedrin council. Thirdly, was the minority on this council called scribes. The scribes is the term for the professional scholars. Biblical scholars professional scholars of the law of Moses that's why you'll also see them referred to it means the same kind of a person the professional the professor the scholar when the New Testament calls them lawyers not like we think about lawyer let's go get a divorce lawyer and that these are the biblical scholars and they're all Pharisees so there were some Pharisees on the council but they were only the minority Now, let me just make a... When we think of this council which will condemn Jesus, they're not all bad. In the New Testament, we know at least of three of these scribes who are Pharisees, who were men of integrity. Like Joseph of Arimathea, he's called a secret disciple of Jesus. He was on the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus talked with Jesus. He's on the Sanhedrin. And Gamaliel, one of the great first-century Jewish scholars, under whom Paul learned. So, if we turn to John, I'm going to turn. You can either turn there or listen for a moment. I want to get a taste of this council a year or two earlier, and what's how the Sanhedrin is working, and we'll hear something about the integrity of one of them. In John 7, starting with verse 45, the officers then came back to the chief priests because the council sent. These guys out to try to get Jesus and bring him to him. And they said, Why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. And now the Pharisees, who were on the Sanhedrin here, answered him, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? but this crowd does not know the law and it is cursed. Now watch. Then Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus before and who was one of them on the Sanhedrin, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied to Nicodemus, Are you also from Galilee? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Here's Nicodemus then defending him. Here's another Sanhedrin council meeting after Jesus' death in Acts chapter 5 where they brought the apostles and Peter. They said, speak. And Peter spoke before this council. And when he was done, we read, when they heard this, they were enraged and they wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, he stood up and he gave orders to have these men, the apostles, put outside. And then he said to the rest of the Sanhedrin, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. And then he gives a long speech and persuades them not to kill the apostle. Okay, so there's men of integrity and in Jesus' official condemnation by the religious court, we don't know. It's the Bible silent whether Nicodemus or Gamaliel or Joseph or Myrathia were there. Maybe they didn't get word to them in time. Or maybe they were there and they just leave out if they made any statements. We don't know. Okay, now, as we come again to this crucial Night before we go to our text in Luke, what I want to do is give you a large outline of all the proceedings that I think is how it happened. In other words, taking all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and what is going on this night. In short, it looks like this. They arrest Jesus on the Mount of Olives, they bring Him into Jerusalem, and they bring Him straight to Annas' house, the high priest Annas, and he has a hearing before Annas. Then they move him from Annas' house over to Caiaphas' house, the sitting high priest, and there's a more extensive grilling of Jesus there. Both of those are happening at night. Hours elapse until the sun rises the next morning and there's another hearing probably in the temple from which they make the conclusion and then they go over to Pilate early in the morning. And he is grilled before Pilate, sent to Herod, that's five, sent back to Pilate, that's six. Jesus and all had six grillings, hearings, or whatever you want to call these, Trials or mock trials, that's what's happening. So let me just slow down and let you see the religious aspect this week before we get to Pilate and Herod next week. He goes first to Annas' house. How do we know? Because John tells us in John chapter 18. I'm going to read John 18, starting with verse 12. He writes... So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus up on the Mount of Olives and they bound Him. First, they led Him to Annas. For He was the father-in-law of Caiaphas who was high priest that year. He goes on. The high priest, this refers to Annas right here now. Annas the high priest then questioned Jesus about His disciples and His teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask Me? Ask those who have heard Me what I said to them. They know what I said. When He had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with His hand and saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And then the last verse says this, Annas then sent Jesus bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. This is all going on at night. So he has his first inquiry before Annas and then he's moved to Caiaphas' house, the high priest. Probably what we saw last week with that hour and a half or so of Peter's three denials is happening during this time. We don't know if Caiaphas' house was down the street or a few blocks away or whether it was on the same compound in a different wing. We're just not sure. So he goes to Caiaphas' house. Okay. Now, in Matthew, in Mark's gospel, they totally leave out this meeting we just read about in Annas' house. Okay. They just jump straight to the meeting that night at the high priest Caiaphas' house house Matthew and Mark tell us more extensively what happened at Caiaphas' house in the night Luke doesn't tell us about that at all we're going to get there in a minute So first, what I'm going to do, I'm going to read Matthew's account of Jesus before Caiaphas and numbers of the council meetings in his house late at night because Mark is almost identical to the way Matthew gives it. Matthew writes in chapter 26, starting with verse 57, And those who had seized Jesus, arrested him, brought him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered The chief priest and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put Him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest Caiaphas stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard His blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in His face and struck Him. And some slapped Him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Okay, If you're looking at Matthew, if you're there in the text, notice that's the last verse of chapter 26. Notice the next thing Matthew says and Mark does the same thing. When morning came, Okay, this tells us, what just happened? That was a night hearing. Whether it's midnight, whether it's 1 a.m., it was in the night. Then they say, when morning came, here's another counsel. All the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put Him to death. Okay, so, do you see it? He's first taken to Annas' house late at night. Then to Caiaphas' house where they do this grilling. They make this preliminary judgment. And then, I don't know, four, five, six hours later, at sunrise, when the morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put Him to death. That's the third council, And that's all Matthew and Mark tell us about it. It happened and then they took Him on to Pilate. But it is at that council that Mark tells us, I mean, excuse me, that Luke tells us about in our account. So evidently, we do know this from the Jewish law of the first century. It was illegal to try a person at night. They got what they wanted. They they want to figure out how can we trap Jesus? How could we get him to admit he's Christ, we know what we want to do. They figure that out at night. In the morning, they go to the temple and they do it officially and then take him to Pilate. And that's what Luke summarizes. Look at verse 66 of our text, chapter 22 of Luke. So Luke says, When day came, okay, this is the next day, not the night meeting, but like Matthew and Mark. When the morning came, Luke says, When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. But first, we've got to deal with those other verses in our text. Evidently, Earlier on, late at night, during the meeting with Annas and the transition to Caiaphas, Peter's denial, probably when Caiaphas's meeting's over and now they're gonna go to bed and wait. The guards are in charge of the custody of Jesus. And as we human beings know, it is amazing what we sinners can do when there's a mob. Rule, as opposed to something we would never do for a loan. These guards are probably getting bored at night and the cruelty in which they toyed with Jesus shows up. Verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking Him as they beat Him they also blindfolded Him and kept asking Him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against Him, blaspheming. They mocked Him. They somehow were mimicking Him. He's Galilean. Maybe His accent like we might do to that glorious accent in the South. Y'all, however they talk, they knew some of Jesus' sayings, and they're toying with him. And the other gospel writers tell us they spit in his face, these guards. Hey, let's see who can hawk the biggest loogie. Ten feet, you've got to be ten feet away and see if he can hit Jesus' mouth. Hey, didn't he? He claims to be a prophet, right? Let's play blind man's bluff with him with a little twist. Okay, ready? Give me that scarf. Put it around his eyes. Twist him around. Okay, bam! Prophesy, Jesus, your prophet. Who hit you? Next guy's turn. Bam! Prophesy! <laughs> They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy. Who is it that struck you? And the irony of those words, Prophesy, our little prisoner, who is it that struck you? This playful, sinful, hard-hearted mockery, the irony, is that Jesus prophesied that this is exactly what He would endure. Back in chapter 18, verse 32 of Luke, about nine months earlier, He said to His disciples, for He, the Son of Man, referring to Himself, for I will be delivered over to the Gentiles, these Roman guards, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. Who hit you, Jesus? The prophet. These guys have no idea who they're talking to here. Here they are in reality with the Creator of the universe in His incarnation. The One who made them who became one of them, a human being, stands before them and they playfully mock him. Just as our culture does today. Just as our culture did last Sunday night on national TV with the Grammy Awards. Whether it's, who hit you, Jesus? Or whether it is you. You take the Bible seriously on what marriage is. (laughs) We will put 50 same-sex couples on national TV and shove it down your face. These guards, pursuit of their fun and games and sinful pleasure, it led them to do these horrific things to the sinless Son of God as our culture does today. But before any of us get to self-righteous saying, I can't believe those men who had custody of Jesus, would do such horrific things to Him, we all must come to grips that every one of us has smacked Him in the face and spit on His face with our sin. Here's the good news. It was because... Of our sin, that Jesus endured this abuse. The abuse of sinners toying with him in such cruel fashion. That was in the night. Hours later is going to come now the council meeting that Luke gives us. And see, the high priest and the Sanhedrin, they know exactly what they want to do. It wasn't a real trial. Their preliminary meetings in the night at the high priest's houses confirmed, okay, that's how we're going to do it. That's what we've got to get him to say or to not deny. And so they meet early Early in the morning at sunrise over at the temple to get this done so they can have Him killed that day before Sabbath falls later that evening. Because then they'd have to wait for days. News is going to get out. Jesus is arrested. They're afraid of the people. and So we read there in verse 66 and 67, When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led Him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. Now, their question was not sincere. It was devised in order to trap Jesus so that they could accuse Him before Pilate, the Roman secular government. You see, if Jesus claims to be the Jewish Messiah, that means claiming, I'm the one foretold to be the son of King David. In other words, It means, I'm a king. That's what Christ means. The Greek for Christ is just for the Hebrew Mashiach or Messiah, Christos. If they get Him to say, yes, I am that Christ, then He stood in opposition to Rome. That's what they're after. They want Rome to kill. Look a couple verses down. Okay? Verse 2 of chapter 23. They take him to Pilate, and this is the accusation they make against Jesus to Pilate. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. That's what they're after. And since the Roman government only had the right to carry out capital punishment in a case like that, and the Jewish leadership, they really didn't want to have to deal with the Jewish multitude, many of whom really liked Jesus. They wanted grounds for Rome to execute Him. Let Pilate, do their dirty work. Are you the Christ? Now I want to pause for a moment. Because the physician, Dr. Luke, is writing this for us. And so you've got to take his whole narrative. And on this question of whether Jesus is the Christ, Luke has been crystal clear that the answer is, Yes. You remember back in chapter 1, the angel says to Mary about Jesus in the womb, and the Lord God will give to Him the throne of His Father, David. That's Christ. That's Messianic. And He will reign as King over the house of Jacob forever and of His kingdom. There will be no end. Now In the temple baby Jesus is brought, Luke tells us about Simeon, the old man, that it had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen that baby. Oh, well, he says it this way. Luke says, before he sees the Lord's Christ. Who, who do they say that I am? Okay, great, but who do you guys say that I am in Peter Pipes up. You are the Christ. The Son of the living God. And Jesus essentially says, you got it right. Because My Father revealed it to you. A week earlier than this trial that Jesus is going through in the temple publicly, He confronted the Jewish leadership essentially saying to them, You're not getting it. David's son, the Christ is somehow a divine figure. This is how He said it in the temple back in chapter 20. But Jesus said to them, how can they say that the Christ, the Messiah, is David's son? Jesus is not denying that. But he he wants to puzzle them. How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 110, verse 1, Jesus quotes it to him. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then Jesus slams the door saying, David thus called him, Lord, so in what sense is He His Son? So Luke, throughout his narrative, is crystal clear. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. But Luke and the other Gospel writers are clear about what happened historically. And that is this. Jesus, rarely in His earthly ministry, asserted directly Yes, I'm Messiah. I'm the Christ. Because that term was too politicized. For first century Jews, the idea of the Christ or the Messiah, it meant this person will come and He will sit on David's throne and reign as King and no one over us. He will rebel and throw off the Roman government from our shoulders. shoulders, And He will establish Israel's independence. That's what this term is loaded with in the first century. And that's why that term could get Jesus executed by the Romans. Because it rang with rebellion. You see, Pilate, Herod, the Romans, they couldn't care less if this Jesus guy claims He's the God of Israel or divine. They didn't care about that. It would have bugged them. Deal with your own issues religiously. We don't care. But, no, He's proclaiming to be, this man is our King of Israel. He's our ruler, not Caesar. Then, watch out then that's a threat to Rome. So if the Sanhedrin can get Jesus to say yes on the Christ, He's a dead man. And Jesus was laying down His life as a ransom for many. Jesus standing before them knows He is a dead man. But, He had another kind of an assertion that He wanted to make about Himself to them. And so He gave them a non-answer. If you are the Christ, tell us, But He said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. See, He saw how useless it was. He knows they've already rejected Him. He knows it's it's political. It's manipulative. It's conniving. And He will not deal with such in a straightforward way with hearts like that. So instead of saying, yes, that's right, I'm the Christ. Did you believe me? He didn't do that. He doesn't throw His pearls before swine. But, He ups the ante. Read on. Verse 69. But, from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now, as we have seen in Luke's Gospel, that term, Son of Man, was Jesus' preferred term for Himself. It, son, When He speaks in the third person, Son of Man, throughout the Gospels, it's like speaking in the first person, I. When He says, I will, I will, it's the same as saying the Son of Man will. Why is He doing that? Because unlike the term Messiah or Christ, where it was filled with theology by first century Jews and what it may mean, We just saw that. Unlike it, they had no theology built around this sort of obscure term in the Old Testament called Son of Man, particularly coming out of Daniel chapter 7, which reads, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and the kingdom, so that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's the Messiah. But He took that term, Son of Man, saying, that's Me. So before the Sanhedrin, Jesus' declaration, but from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. It was His clearly proclaiming about Himself a prophetic word that He will be heavenly exalted as Messiah at the right hand of God. And that's why Also, where David gives us this language, Jesus is saying what David was referring to in Psalm 110 was me. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And those members of the Sanhedrin who were biblically literate in any way, they heard loud and clear what Jesus was saying. See verse 70? And so to that they all said, Are you therefore the Son of God? They heard it. Now before we go to Jesus, answer for a minute. Luke has made that clear. The answer to it is, yes, He is. Back in Luke 1 verse 32, the angel says about Jesus, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. In chapter 3, verse 22, it is baptism. The voice of the Father comes out of heaven and says, This is My beloved Son. In His temptation in the wilderness, what does Satan use? He uses the truth. If! You are the Son of God, which, of course, by definition, He is. In His transfiguration, again the voice comes out of heaven. This is my beloved Son. And John opens his Gospel. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And that Word became human And dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father. And so in the next few hours after this trial, John 3.16 will ring loud and clear. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. So that whoever would believe in Him will not perish in their sin, but they will have eternal life. He is God the Son. So as the Father is now in the process of finally at the end, from incarnation now to the trial, to the mocking, He is giving His Son, eternal Son, without beginning, in true humanity for the sins of all who will believe in Him. And His atonement for sin was easily sufficient. Not only sufficient to take the eternal, unending, frowning, yet holy face of God towards me as sinner, and suffer for that, but for who knows how many billions who will be saved. It was sufficient because this is God. God. In true humanity, the person is infinite without beginning and eternal. To stoop down that stairway of eternity was more than sufficient as he now is receiving God's very wrath against sin that he never committed. So they all said to Him, Are you the Son of God then? Because of what you just said. And Jesus answered, You say that I am. Why doesn't He just say, Yes! I think the reason goes back to Jesus' explanation of why He spoke in parables. He spoke in parables purposefully in order that people seeing may not see. And in their hearing, they will not understand parables. Jesus was saying, I'm using them because they're there to reveal truth to genuine hearts. They're there to reveal truth to genuine hearts seekers, but they're also there on purpose to hide the truth from scoffers, from hard-hearted scoffers, steeped in their arrogant spiritual blindness. What is his answer you say that I am? He is saying I am, but he's not saying it straightforwardly. Because he does not want to respond to men who are asking from such a disgusting, hard-hearted, manipulative motive. You say that I am. But it was sufficient. They took that clearly as his admission. See verse 71? Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from His own lips. In other words, we've got Him. He admitted it. He just testified against Himself. He's claiming some kind of God-like at the right hand of God's power, God-like Messiah. That's enough to go to Pilate with. And yet, all the while, Jesus is purposely going to the cross in order to bear the wrath of God against sinners who will hear this message down through the ages and believe. And before I close, let me draw a couple. Implications of what we see here for our present world. First is this. Just as Jesus allowed... Don't ever get that. Just as He allowed Himself to be treated abusively by these bored guards who mocked Him with their voice and their actions, and belittled Him, and ridiculed Him, as a silly man, and spit upon him, and slugged him, just as Jesus allowed all that, even though He could have had them all struck dead in an instant. So, this very day, He allows the blasphemies of the world. He allows... Abusive speech and actions of sinful people against himself. He, during this present age, until his second coming, will continue to allow it. He is patiently enduring all kinds of abuse so that some, some, through His mercy, will wake up and come to repentance and faith in the context of this present evil world. And He's enduring it so that others will be storing up more and more wrath for themselves on the day of wrath and righteous judgment of God at Jesus' second coming. Mm So we do live in a time when God allows sinners to sit in judgment on Jesus in the sense of allowing them to hold and to express all kinds of crazy, stupid, blaspheming ideas against Him just as the guards did. Just as the Sanhedrin did. Christ, in His patience, allows people and He allows cultures to mock Him, to spit on Him, to ridicule Him as the nationally televised Grammys did last Sunday night. They are allowed to belittle god's word they're allowed to snub their noses at jesus' love for his bride, the church, which is pictured in god's ordination of marriage, defined as between one man and one woman. they could mock it by doing so-called marriage publicly with 50 same-sex couples. There is a massive war in this country against the essence of Christianity. And it's all because, for now, our Sovereign Lord allows it. Just make sure you are on the right side. Finally, as sinners, every one of us in here was born into the world just as these mocking guards were who toyed with Jesus and spit in His face. Jesus allowed what we saw in our text. He allowed that abuse upon Himself because of my sin and your sin. He was condemned by the Sanhedrin for us and for our salvation. And so, we who have fled to Jesus for salvation and have seen the glory and the beauty of the Gospel of Christ because God has shown the light in our hearts in the hearing and the reading and the contemplating and the thinking of it. We have eternal forgiveness. We have an assurance of the treasures laid up in heaven. We have the assurance of the physical resurrection of our human bodies just like Jesus had 2,000 years ago. It's coming because we who have fled to Him are those who by new birth battle our sinful inclinations. Not to earn salvation, but because we have been united to Jesus in His mocking, in His death. As Paul said, this Gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Or as Paul writes to us in Romans 6, what shall we say then? Are we who are Christians to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Answer, no, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know? That all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His condemnation before the Sanhedrin. His death. We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk means live in newness of life. And so, Jesus' suffering in this text, it is central to every Christian's life. Finally, three years into Luke, the suffering, the pain, the spittle, the slugging, and even the blood in the mouth and the nose has begun to flow and this is why we turn as believers to the lord's table often in order to remember him in these hours and to say to each other is the body of christ and to say it not just in our hearts, but acted out physically in the eating of the bread, which is His body, and the drinking of the cup, which is His blood shed, as we will be partaking in a few minutes. And if you are a baptized believer in Jesus, you are welcome to take the bread and the cup as they come by and hold on to them. We will be praying over them. and. Eating and drinking of it together. But as we do, we're praying, oh Jesus, what a glorious gospel. Empower me this day to overcome my flesh and in sinful inclinations and to walk in newness of life. You have purchased, not perfection, but You have purchased real believers. Number one, Lord Jesus, let Your power by Your Spirit operate in me to be a repentant person who clings to Your Word and Your promises this week father would you would you by means of the spit hitting your son's face by means of fist connecting with his head by means of ridicule of words by means of his condemnation before the religious court and what will follow save anybody in here who has not yet come to you let them know deep in their heart that right this moment they can come and be forever cleansed and forgiven and engrafted into the body of Christ and let those of us down the road of our walk this morning, be empowered and refreshed again and again by your word, this holy book in our lives, through prayer and the tangible, desperately needed work of you, God, the Holy Spirit.